Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And so we, if we go on to this season, we do have some live tennis finally. And, uh, you know, a lot of tennis happened the last week or so and a lot of other news bits. And so we're going to cover all of that in this podcast. And, you know, I, I guess the three of us are mostly based in North America. So, you know, uh, Owen is from New York. I'm from the Pacific, um, San Diego, California area. And then you have Andre, who's also in the same time zone in Montreal uh, as Owen. So for us... The easiest one to cover was Delray Beach, uh, the Delray Beach Open, which featured the number one seed Christian Guerin, and uh, he he lost early, but nonetheless, we the tournament was played and we had a winner in Hubert Hurkacz, um, and Owen was able to actually catch a lot of the, a lot of this tournament. So, uh, Owen, you know what stuck uh, out with you is it the run of Sebastian Corda, uh, and uh, you know you can take it however direction you like. Sure. Um, so several things stuck out. Um, I think if we want to talk about first the number one seed, um, Christian Guerin, he, so he was the favorite twin, uh, per his seeding, but he ran into, um, Christian Harrison, who was ranked outside the top 700, I think, um, before the tournament started in the round of 16. And he went down a break. I think Harrison served for the first set at 6-5-40 love. And so the set looked over. And then when Garen somehow broke back, won five points in a row, I thought that he would win the tiebreak and then run away with the match. But Harrison, with a nice reset, took the tiebreak 7-3 and then won the second set 6-2. So the top seed went out. Um, John Isner lost, I think, in the following round. He, he was the second seed to Sebastian Corda. Three-set match there. Uh, Corda really impressed me this week, in particular with his returning in the first set against Isner, which he won 6-3. He was in every single Isner service game. He he got to break point often. He had some 15-30s, love 30s, I think. And then he served it out in the third set from love 40 down. He, and he's only 20, and before Delray Beach, his only ATP wins, I believe, had been in the French Open last year, where he made the fourth round before losing to Nadal. So this, Corda made the decision to skip the Australian Open and play Delray Beach, and so I think he made a great decision. He played very well this week. He made the final, where he lost to Hubert Hercotch, who had a great week of his own. Um, in the final, the stat that really jumped out to me was um, Hercotch's serving. He served at 76%, won 71% of his first serve points, faced just one break point in the entire match, and that was in the first game. In the third set, uh, to my unofficial count, he hit 12 serves that were unreturned, so a combination of aces, service winners, and missed serve, uh, missed returns from Corda. Corda was struggling with um, an adductor injury, I think, in the second set. Um, and he his fight kind of faded after 
losing the first set. He was up 3-1 in that set. But he played some really impressive tennis. He has good pop off both wings. He can push opponents around. Something that I think he will inevitably improve is the ability to sustain his offense from the back of the court. A problem he has is sort of missing a random ball when he's on top of a point. But I think that will improve as he matures and he's got he's gonna mature plenty in the future again he's only 20 so i think a really successful tournament for both the finalists and a pretty entertaining one overall yeah that's a fantastic summary i think uh you know one of the things that struck me you know watching some of the matches that i did is i was really impressed with corda's maturity and poise on the court i was really impressed by his overall solid game i think um you know uh you know a lot of the american players they have big serves and big forehands that they can rely on to win easy points but I think Korda showed that even at, you know, six foot five he is, and I think same with her catch. You know, they mm-hmm. both move around and cover the court so well. And I think uh, I love his backhand, how compact it is, that swing, and it's such a fluid shot. And he can hit it, you know, both directions. He's got he's got a nice serve that he can move around in the box and it will only get bigger. I think you know, his serve actually can get a lot bigger than what it is now. But I really like his uh aggression. He moves forward well, he's got a He's got a nice all-round easy flowing game to watch and I think uh, I think that'll bode well for the future. He's already proven that he's good on clay. Um mm-hmm. getting to the fourth round of the French last year. Um he's now beaten John Isner twice and he's returned his serve, you know, with a plomb, I think. And so to see him beat, you know, Tommy Paul and then John Isner and then back that up with a tough win against Cameron Norrie, these are all players that play very differently and he's able to adjust his game. And so you really like to see that in a young player like him and he's obviously well coached he's got uh his dad peter corda uh coaching mm-hmm. him who's won the australian open before he's got uh he's come from a whole family of athletes with uh, two siblings that are professional golfers and his mom was a pro as well so he's very well equipped i think to handle the professional to handle the rigors of the professional tour and i think um you know i think his movement was slightly inhibited in that second set like you mentioned against uh her catch but nonetheless, it was a great week for Herkatch. He didn't drop a set. He beat the players that he was supposed to beat. Um, I think he's made a guy who's made steady progress. I think this was his second career title, if I'm not mistaken. He won in Winston-Salem yes. uh, back in 2019. And I think last year was a little bit of a, uh, you know, not a step back, but he he wasn't able to show the progress that he made so much. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is a great way, way for him to start the week, even though he didn't face anybody in the top, top 100, I think... Uh, I think hopefully he'll bring that aggression, like you said, in the in the big moments. That's what I'm most looking forward to. You know, third round of a slam, fourth round of a slam, yeah. facing one of the top ten guys. You know, how is he going to? Because he's beating the players that he should be beating. But I want to see how he does. You know, when the stakes are higher. That yeah, the, th- that's exactly right, Vaughn. Like you said, he didn't drop a set this week, but based on his competition, that's really not a surprise. But I think, regardless, winning this tournament is going to be a nice confidence boost for him heading into the year. He defends really well, like you said, he moves well, uh, especially for a tall guy with a big serve. And I'm curious to hear what you guys think of this. I thought, I think that of anyone, it, he's probably the easiest on the ATP Tour to compare to Medvedev because he has a bit of the flexibility, the defense, but also the big serve. And it's kind of that strange combination that not many people have. Yeah, I mean, you made a lot of interesting points there. I th- I do think the game is moving more towards tall guys that can move and can defend and cover the court well and trade, like you said. You know, they're very willing to trade and stay in long rallies. And I think uh, what what impressed me about Korda is that he seems to have, at least for these four matches that we saw this week, he seemed to have that right balance to where I think if you compare it to the other Americans, if you look at Francis Tiafo, 
I mean, he's he is actually extremely quick and fit around the court. He relies a lot on his athleticism, but he goes through these patches in his uh, in in the matches where he just loses focus and he loses, and he's up and down in the way he's in the way he's playing. And you just you can't have that at the at this level, you know. Against a guy like Nori, he's going to make you pay. He's so steady. He just he's comfortable just uh, you know using your pace and trading with you and you know you know relying on his shot tolerance. And I think uh, for Tiafo. Uh, he made some he made some progress this week. He showed some fight, but uh, you know he has some technical issues in his game that I just if he wants to get to that next level, I just don't you know see him both both uh, both mentally, but also on his forehand side. If you notice, he has a little bit of a hitch in his swing, and so that take back is rushed a lot. And so you know certain so that's what I liked about Corda is that he has that fluidity in his strokes, and it seems like the technique is there. Uh, at least at this level, and can hold up under pressure, and so I think that's an asset that uh, hopefully will serve him well. And uh, and you know, hopefully, you know, same thing with with her catch in that final. I'd like to see him use some more offense, you know, in his game mm-hmm. and step up because he's such a great ball striker. I actually saw um, Matt the Racket on Twitter. He was comparing his backhand to Andy Murray's, and they're very similar in terms of the way they uh, their take back and the way they prepare that stroke. It's just that Murray can do much more offensively, and he's mm-hmm. willing to, you know, he's willing to go for, pull that trigger earlier in rallies, which Hercatch needs to learn how to do. But uh, nonetheless, I think it was, I think it was a good week, and it was great that we didn't, you know, th- that we saw a nice variety of styles. I think, uh, um, you know, and especially considering that this field wasn't as strong as we thought it would be, um, mm-hmm. I think overall it was positive that they were able to finish that tournament. <laughs> And yeah. uh, I guess we can talk about uh, we can talk about uh, Christian Harrison because Christian Harrison had a mm. great run. It's a great story. I mean, he made uh, eight surgery. He had eight surgeries before he got to this week, but uh, you know that was unfortunately overshadowed by some of his comments um, after these matches, and yeah. um, you know that was quite devastating to to see. Um, it's one thing to express your opinion, but it's another thing to go on social media and actually advocate against masks and advocate against safety and protocol. And I think that was uh, yeah. what disturbed a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And I'll, I'll catch up our listeners on a couple of his posts in case you haven't seen them on um, January 6th. That's a week and a half ago. Um, he posted a photo saying been feeling great, working hard, healthy enough to play three hour matches and then two alarm emojis, but I'm an absolute safety hazard walking maskless through a restaurant with a Pinocchio emoji hashtag open up the world. And these these protocols aren't hard to understand. People should know that you can pass the virus on to someone else, no matter how how healthy you are. That you being low risk doesn't make it harder to spread it to someone else. And then after his um, his second round match, he says um, he chose not to do his post match interview due to wearing a mask. It's not healthy to wear a mask in the hot sun for more time than is absolutely necessary after a tough match. And it might be slightly uncomfortable, but these post-match interviews are very short. He also said he was under the impression that it wasn't mandatory. And um, on Twitter, Stephanie Miles from Open Court tweeted that um, this is very clear on page two hundred and eight of the rule book that these that you are expected to to do a post-match interview. It's mandatory. So he clearly didn't read that, and it's really not a burden to wear a mask even in the hot sun for just a few minutes. And so these. 
and he got fined three thousand dollars, I think, and so he is appealing the fine. But this is, like Vaughn said, it's kind of overshadowing this amazing week he had because it is a great story. He's he was ranked outside the top seven hundred before this tournament. He's had so many surgeries, and he he played very well. He beat the top seed, and then. Um, he took Hercotch to a tiebreak, I think, yeah. Um, and second set was close, too. So, th- like, there is some potential there. He played some great tennis, but these these views are just really troubling, especially coming from the U.S., where the virus is absolutely running rampant right now. 4,000 people are dying a day. Um, and this isn't just unique to Harrison. We saw Jack Sock got married recently. Congratulations to him, but he held an undistanced wedding, and John Isner unmasked wedding. And John Isner tweeted that it's totally unnecessary for NFL coaches to be wearing masks on the sidelines. And regardless of whether that's true or not, which we could get into, you really shouldn't be using that large of a platform to be advocating against masks when things are this bad. And he's expressed um, other anti-mask beliefs in the past, I think. And so it's kind of troubling to see all these players sort of be uneducated on how, how the virus works, how one person can pass it to another, why masks are necessary. And they're using their platforms, big platforms, to express these views. And this may very well be contributing to the harm of some people. And so um, this is an idea I've sort of floated before, but I think the ATP would really benefit from kind of putting out like a mandatory safety course. It could just be like five, 10 minutes long of a video explaining why COVID-19 is dangerous, how it can be spread, and then maybe asking players to answer a couple questions on it and saying like, you know, if you do this before your match, um, then you can play or something. And it would be really easy. It would contribute to safety, I think, if players know what they should be doing, because like players clearly don't. We had the Adria tour. um, We've had players play while they're feeling sick. And this is not hard to understand. It's so avoidable. And so I think the ACP should do something to facilitate a better understanding. Nonetheless, I think it's unfortunate because you have cases like this and you have, you know, you have cases like, uh, like Adriator and stuff, you know, that are well documented, but then uh, that puts stain on tennis as a whole when majority of the players are actually doing the right thing. Majority of the mm-hmm. players are actually following the protocols. Majority of the players understand the bubble tennis was able to adapt and change so quickly. Look how many events we had last year. So, you know, you look at all of these things and you just, just hope that those few certain players can just hold it to, they can just keep it under control and not cause this kind of chaos. But, uh, you know, this mm-hmm. is, this is part of the sport that we live in. You know, it's never going to be, yeah. <laughs> never going to be perfect in, in that regard, especially when you have so many players coming from different backgrounds and countries. Mm. Yeah. And so it's, it's an imperfect, yeah. it's imperfect I, that way. I, I agree, and I think this is also sort of representative of how, of the larger scale, most people are following guidelines, mm-hmm. but the few that don't are exactly. pretty much directly responsible for all the all the harm this has caused. Right. And and this is not to say that the few American players who are maybe tweeting an anti-mask view are responsible for these thousands of deaths, but they could be responsible for a couple cases here and there, and. I, th- I think it's really frustrating to have to reduce like the hope to just that, like hoping the players can hold it together. Um, and so it- it's honestly quite disappointing. Uh, yeah, moving on from Delray Beach, uh, I really want to talk about the women's side of the game because it's so interesting. I mean, just the variety and variation of players that we have on the tour right now. First WTA 500, and so they've changed the nomenclature, whereas before, you know, they used to have the premier... They used to have the premier two. They used to have the premier mandatory. There used to be four mandatory tournaments, 
that were they would award 1,000 points and then their premier category. And then there was a premier five event, premier mandatory are the top level, you know, after the WTA finals. And then you have the premier and then you have the internationals, which is so confusing. I mean, imagine if you're trying to get into the sport and you're like, wait, which this one is a combined event. This one goes, you know, this is, this is played here. Oh, this is 900 points. No, instead, this is 1,000. So I think uh, having that nomenclature of 1,500, 250 makes it easier, even though they haven't actually changed the ranking points yet. But at least you know where. But at least you know where they rank in terms of in terms of importance and significance. So this week, actually, we had uh, a great event in Abu Dhabi, which had a draw of 64 players, and you had to win six matches to win this thing. And against four top 10 players, were in this draw, and you know it was in um, uh, it, it was played on these really nice courts, these blue courts uh, that I thought really gave off a you know it was great TV and camera angles and viewing for the for um, the part that was tough for me was just the time zone difference between here and Abu Dhabi. So I was I wasn't able to catch, you know, per se every point of every match, but I got to see a few live streams and a and a few and a lot of decent highlights. And I thought, um, man, I mean, Sabalenka leaves off right where she, where she started. I thought it was an incredible week for her, you know, because recently the past three seasons she's finished the year incredibly strong, and we know we know how good she can play when she's on. You know, we know that she has absolutely fearsome power off both wings. She takes the ball extremely early. She plays excellent for strike tennis. She was moving a lot better than she ever did uh, previously. Her serve is a weapon, and she just plays like you know. Honestly, I don't give a squat. Like she's she, no matter what her opponents throw at her, whether it's variety, whether it's slices, whether they they just don't have the power differential is just so big when her shots are going in that it almost doesn't matter. You look at her last two rounds. I mean, the way she handled Maria Sakari, who was playing excellent tennis. Maria Sakari was. You know, playing. I, I thought fin- finally found that balance between defense and offense that I was waiting on her for her to see. She had a great win over Sofia Kennan coming back from a set down. A lot of other great uh, wins throughout the week. She beat Muguruza. So I thought that was going to be a much closer match. And honestly, semifinal and final, she just dispatched her opponents. I mean, that was 6 3, 6 2, 6 2, 6 2 against Kudermatova, who had a great week and uh, who had a great week herself. And so I thought, I, I thought it was, it really showed. In terms of the quality, was really high uh, of that tennis. I thought out of the three tournaments, if we're just going by quality, this was definitely the highest, um, in my opinion. And we saw a lot of three set three set matches that could go either way. You look at the women's game right now, and you think, oh, they're ranked four and they're ranked fifty. I mean, it's a toss up. I mean, these the the level of the how even these players are between four and fifty in the world are. There's really no clear dominant player right now. And so that's what makes it interesting is can Arena Sabalenka, who's on a 15-match winning streak, this was her ninth career title, she's never reached past the fourth round of a major, which is shocking um, when you think about it. And so I think, you know, she's finally coming in with all this momentum. Okay, she's going to have to do a two-week quarantine, but uh, you got to put her in the mix at least uh, for, for, you know, she's now number seven in the world after this. So she has to be in contention for the title. The question is just, you know, can she get over that odd third round, fourth round loss that she hmm. she keeps happening? I mean, I, actually, if you think about it, I did some digging and her losses that season in the majors weren't so bad. It was more just that she wasn't playing her best tennis. And when hmm. she doesn't play her best tennis, she can miss balls by a lot, you know. And so she lost to Jabor in the third round of the French. She lost in the second round, which second round of the U.S. Open to Azarenka, which if you look at what Azarenka did, it's not a terrible loss, right? No, and, no, no. and first round of the Australian Open where she that was a little disappointing she lost to Carlos Suarez Navarro a tricky player but you know a match she should never lose so 
you know, you look at she's never gotten past the fourth round. So if she can make a, make a quarterfinal or semifinal at the Australian Open, that'll already be a step up for her. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, and I think this is the time for her to do it. Fifteen match winning streak, um, hard courts, same as Abu Dhabi, yeah. and and like you said, I think like a really exciting aspect of the WTA is that seating holds much less weight than it does in men's tennis because everyone is susceptible to a player zoning and taking them out no matter what their ranking is. We saw that when Sakari was down a set to Sophia Kennan. Sakari was the ninth seed, seed Kennan was the top seed and the best player of 2020. And after the first set, she won two games for the rest of the match. Right. And then in turn, Sabalenka crushed Sakari. So I think um, I think this two-week quarantine is going to impact things a lot. And a lot of players might not start the tournament in form. And so confidence is going to be crucial if people aren't going to be able to play their best tennis right away. And Sabalenka should have as much confidence as she's ever had because of this big winning streak she's on. The one thing I would say I'm concerned about besides oh, like a player playing at their best and taking her out is since she hasn't really gone that deep at a major before, she doesn't know what it takes to win seven matches in a row against the best competition competition in the world. But again, I think her confidence will be big, especially if she can get over that hump, maybe make it to a quarterfinal, semifinal. She should be lethal in the later rounds as well. Yeah, so so I, I watched a lot of these matches, and I think uh, you know what struck me is I was impressed with Swidlina in the first couple of rounds, uh, and... And she got to play Kurumatova. I was impressed. Uh, um, Svitolina, not Serena. Svitolina has uh, recently hired a, a psychology. She's recently hired a psychologist, kind of taking a page off of Sviantek's book. So, um, you know, and she she looks and she looked in much better spirits, and she was in total control of the match against uh, Kurumatova. And you know, she was up a break in the second set. She was up a break. She should have closed it out in the third. Um, and you know, she had. She even had a match point. She saved a match point against Alexandrova, and then she had a big lead in that third set um, against Kudermatova. And I thought, again, you know, Kudermatova, um, I, I thought, firstly, Svitolina was playing a little bit passively on the big points. I think uh, uh, something about Svitolina is she has great movement. She has great um, athleticism. She covers the court very well. She has, she's got a great backhand. Um, most of these players on the WTA side, you notice they have great backhands, and you know that's their biggest that's their biggest asset. They can either redirect it or strike it hard cross court or defend with that side. But when it comes, but certain players are more prone to their forehand side breaking down a little bit and getting too passive, and that's where Svitolina, I thought, backed up behind the baseline and started getting playing very passively, almost waiting for Kudermatova to miss. And Kurumbatova hit a really hot streak in the in the match where she was serving a ton of aces and getting free points. She was hitting huge forehands and going for it. And she was she deserved to win because she was playing the bolder tennis under pressure, and that's what you look for. And I think that's where Svitolina is kind of in that sfunk. You have the whole sfunk of players, this cluster of players that are like Pliskova, Svitolina, um, Kiki Burtons, you know, you know, people that we've kind of talked about in that middle generation for a while that haven't won that major yet and you know have made semifinals and finals and have been in the top five and won big titles like the WTA finals and won over 10 titles but they're struggling to you know show that fight in those moments and peak um in that sort of quarterfinal semifinal parts of slams and so that's what we're, what we're waiting for Pushkova I thought was pretty disappointing to start off the year like that the way she did losing two and four to Gasanova a player I'd never heard of I had to look her up 
<laughs> because I had no idea that her ranking was that low, you know, 247 in the world. And she played great tennis and, and held it together. She had nothing to lose. But I thought Svitolina didn't show much uh, fight, didn't show much... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Pus- Puskova. Puskova, I'm sorry. Uh, didn't show By the way, I that fight. Right, yeah, she she lost to uh, she lost to Kudermatova. She won her first couple. She won her first three matches actually. Know, uh, so she beat. Right, yeah, yes, yes, correct, yeah. She lost to Gasanova there, and then um, you know, I, I just thought it was disappointing. In the past, we've seen her win titles and then fall short at majors. So maybe it'll be the reverse this time that she'll actually she'll go into the majors. Well, yeah, maybe yeah. maybe something like that because I mean, when her game is on, she's quite dangerous. She has a big serve. She has big, she has big ground strokes. She has she's limited in her movement, but she has great power off both wings. And you know, she's made a U.S. Open final before. She's the only one of these kind of players that's made a final and was up a break in the third set against Kerber of the 2016 yeah. U.S. Open. So she's just not quite. I just like to see some more emotion in her. You know, when she wins a big point, mm-hmm. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see that fight on her. It's almost as if she's content. And I and I don't like to see that. I want to see them really dig in and scrap, like the way Kennan was doing in her first couple of, couple of rounds before eventually she just ran out of gas and looked fatigued and lost that third set six love to Sakari. But uh, you know, there's a lot of good players right now in the WTA, and I thought, uh, you know, really Sabalenka, if she's playing the way she is playing right now, I mean, and she brings that level of power. There's not many players that can match that on the WTA side, other than Naomi Osaka maybe and. Some of the player, younger players that we saw, like Sviantek and Andreescu. Yeah. Yes, that's that's a, that's one I forgot to mention. Jennifer Brady. That was a yeah, after result. bageling yeah. in the first set right. too. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was disappointing. I didn't see any of the match, so I can't really say what went wrong. But I just looked at the score and was like six love, one love, and I'm like thinking, okay, yeah, Brady's Brady's gonna have a great year this year. And then I check two hours later, and she's out. So. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, disappointing, but there's no reason why she can't perform well in Australia. So I think. Uh, yeah. I, I think it will learn a lot more, especially that we have two WTA two fifties uh, before the Australian Open even starts, the week of February first, same mm-hmm. week as the ATP Cup. So. Uh, yeah. yeah, it'll be the, interesting to the, see. The Australian Open on the women's side is just, it's so difficult to predict because you have all these players, Muguruza, Brady, uh, Pliskova, Svitolina, Sabalenka, who, like, very varying performances in Abu Dhabi. And these players, I would say, are almost equally capable of making a semifinal or crashing out in the second or third round. And and so much of it depends on performance on the day. It's it's practically impossible to predict. And it, it makes it really interesting. Last thing I really wanted to touch on uh, was another player that I thought made really big strides that I'm really looking forward to for 2021. And that's this 18-year-old Marta Kostyuk. She made her breakthrough three years ago. As a 15-year-old, she made the third round of the Australian Open in 2018. And so she's had a lot of injuries and setbacks since then and hasn't been able to quite deal with that pressure that came with that run. Uh, and of course, several injuries got in the way and the depth of the women's game. But now here she is. She makes a semifinal here. And she knocks off, you know, three or four excellent opponents. Um, you know, none of them were like seated players, but like coming back against Chase Away is really tough. And she beat Zidancic, who had beaten Kerb, who had beaten Brady, uh, like you mentioned, after losing the first set six love. And then she she eventually lost out to Kurumatova in the semis. But 
you know, I mean, great run. Just watching her play, she reminds me a lot of Belinda Bencic when she was younger. Mm-hmm. She has great uh, kind of smooth backhand, moves the ball around the court really well, just does a lot of things very well and has a good serve, um, takes the ball early. Uh, one match that I watched from hers last year, but I was really impressed, was the match against Naomi Osaka in the third round of the U.S. Open, which was honestly Osaka's probably her toughest match before her semis. Um, she had uh, Kostyuk won the second set and had, uh, like, Osaka was serving at 1-2, love 40 in the third set. So it's quite possible if she converts there, you know, she takes out Naomi out of the tournament. There's a good chance because of the way she was playing. So I just felt like uh, this could be a big year for her already. So something to keep an eye out uh, eye out on. And you still have some players that you know are going to be in the top 10. So the rankings won't change as much, but you just feel like there's more players that can upset you on any given day. You know, you just feel like the seeds at the majors don't hold up uh, quite the same way. And then you have your steady players like Pushkova, Svidalina, and Halep that you know are going to be there. But then you also have, you know, comeback player of the year, Victoria Azarenka. Throw her in the mix. Bianca Andreescu coming back. I'm really looking forward to see how Bianca does. She took a whole year off. And she's proven that she can come back right away from a layoff and win titles. She won Toronto and US Open and didn't play a match for four months. I don't put anything past her. Just because of her, just because of her, me- her me- mental strength to me is just amazing. The way she was gritting her way it through is. those wins. She has the power. She has the touch. She has the, the finesse. She's so creative with the way she plays. She can... Yeah. Uh, she's never down and it's it's she's just so much fun to watch you know she reels you in and you just feel like out of all the players that i've missed um you know on the women's side you just feel like man if she was in these tournaments you just you just really want to see her back healthy and that's the challenge for her is she can't stay healthy for more than a month and it's that's that's the really strange part but now that she's had a whole year off and she's got such a great team yeah in terms of predicting how she'll do when she's healthy she's as good as anyone but it's and so i think if if she is healthy i have no problem with calling her one of the favorites but it's just been so long since we've seen her play several matches in a row without without injury that i just have it's just impossible to know what she'll look like in her first match on court so exactly and something else is that uh i, I think she mentioned is that uh i think or that at least i heard an interview of her coach mentioning is that she didn't know that she was going to go on that kind of a run. You know, she could, it's nothing that they could have predicted. It almost came, it came from a really good off season they had in 2018, but it's just that almost her body wasn't able to cope with the amount of matches that she was playing because she was winning so much. Uh, yeah. It kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah. You know, back to back three setters every single day. So physical. And so Mm -hmm. I I just think her body wasn't quite ready for it at 19, you know, it's, it's, and and, and sometimes you do, you do see that if someone makes an unexpectedly deep run when they haven't really won a high profile tournament before you can see their body start to break down, even as they're soul winning, just because they're so, they're so unused to the strain that all these back-to-back matches are going to put on your body. So I I do hope it's that. And as she gets older, she's not going to be as susceptible to that kind of, um, fatigue, injury causing fatigue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, look forward to that. Um, on the other side, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the qualies. Uh, so the men, they played in Doha. Uh, and the, the women, they played in Dubai. I guess I'll just start with a couple of stories, um, you know, highlights from it. Um, I thought we had some great stories in the qualifying. There was just so much tension in these qualies matches. And you could just feel it for these players on the court. Because, you know, normally they play they play these in Australia. There's a wildcard challenge to see who gets wild cards into the qualifying and who gets into the main draw. And, you know, because of the pandemic this year, we basically had qualifying happening two weeks before. Uh, and then they're going to eventually be sent on, they were sent on charter flights to Melbourne. 
So we saw um, two really excellent stories, and one of them is actually a Canadian, Andre, in Rebecca in Rebecca Marino, um, who had who just won all of her matches with relatively ease, relative ease, I thought, and was just it's just so nice to see her back again healthy after all the injuries and mental struggles she had because she's a great player. She's one of these other players along with Jeannie Bouchard that when they find their form, you know, they they they're capable of playing great tennis. It's just can they sustain it? And um you know, I guess Bouchard is a little different because she made her breakthrough much earlier, six years ago and but uh, in terms of Rebecca Moreno, she's still quite young at around twenty one years of age. So so it's uh it's quite a stance. Um Rebecca Marino uh I, I think has played a lot of qualities before if I'm not mistaken. So she's this was a this was a big step forward for her. Yeah, I, I think another great thing that Canadian tennis has going for it is basically all of these players are very young. So I would assume they still have their best years ahead of them. And Raunich did very well in twenty twenty. He um Came close to beating Djokovic in the final of uh, Cincinnati, in quotes, because, uh, of course, it was actually played in at uh, the U.S. Open site. Um, but, yeah, he's um, he's a recent quarter finalist at the Australian Open, I think. Uh, got crossed by Djokovic, but uh, that's happened to pretty much every top player on the men's side at the Australian Open. So, um, so I think he's got good results ahead of him as well. Yeah, I would agree. I think Canadian tennis is in really good shape, honestly, probably better than American tennis. Uh, with, you know, you got hmm. three guys in the top 25 and you got, you know, uh, Bouchard playing better at the end of last year. Unfortunately, she didn't qualify uh, for the Australian Open this time. Um, but uh, there's no reason why she can't pick her ranking back up. She's back in the top 150 now. Um, Rebecca Marino, hmm. who unfortunately I misspoke earlier. I was actually saying that uh, Jeannie Bouchard was 21 when she made the Wimbledon final run. But... Uh, Rebecca Marino is at 30 years of age making a really big comeback uh, to qualify and win the three matches the way she she did. I think she beat some good players and you know I think a lot of a lot of Canadians were su- pleasantly surprised that it was her and not Jeannie that qualified. So I think it'll be interesting to see where she's placed in the main draw uh, and then we can mm-hmm. we can go from there. And also you've got like Felix and Dennis and Pashpasil they're all playing great ball. So yeah possible. um he, he beat uh Raonic and uh batista right, good at the u.s exactly. open last year so he, he's got quite a high yeah, ceiling so, as well. so that was encouraging to see uh from the qualies uh, another story on the women's side is the story of 20 year old brit francesca uh francesca jones who was told at eight years old that she's she has a very unusual physical condition where she is missing toes and hands and it's and it's a very rare disease. F- fingers. Oh, wait, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, she's missing fingers on her hands, and she's also missing toes on her feet. And, you know, this is a rare genetic condition that's called ectrodactyl ectodermal dysplasia. And it's, you know, she, where she only has three fingers and a thumb on each hand and has three toes on one foot and four toes on the other. So this is remarkable that she's been able to show that kind of resilience and still been able to play tennis through so much adversity that, you know, even her doctors are saying that you might never be able to play tennis again. And think of the, you know, mental trauma and damage that comes with, you know, facing a condition like that and just the daily struggles, let alone playing tennis, having to change your game style and having to get new, uh, she uses a special different kind of racket that allows her to switch, switch hands between her strokes and you know, and she's had to adjust her movement and the way she's only 20 years of age and she thrashed these players in qualifying. I mean, she beat 
she was barely losing games to any of these players. She won her final round of qualifying 6-12, 6-1. So I think it's quite an inspiration, it's an inspirational story to see this. And I think, uh, yeah, she's going to inspire so many, so many great players on both tours. So. That's a really incredible story, and that's not just uh, getting through qualifying. That's getting through qualifying in really dominant fashion. So it shows that even if you get dealt an unlucky yeah. hand, you can still yeah, not just and be then good, on the men's side, great. you know, you had uh, Mr. Bernard Tomic, Tomic the tank engine, as he's been nicknamed in the past. This week, I mean, he was Tomic the tri engine because he uh, he came up with uh, three really gutsy wins in qualifying. Actually, played really well, fought hard. You know, won some matches like seven six in the third. Uh, qualified is honestly like the biggest troll ever because he's like the guy who didn't become what we thought he would, and he, you know, he reached the quarterfinals of the twenty eleven Wimbledon and took a set off Djokovic as an eighteen year old, and now here he is. Uh, you know, I kind of have, I kind of admire that a little bit that he was able to kind of restart and you know still qualify and <laughs> you know the kind of polarizing figure that he he is and the the troubles he's had, you know. And it's like the biggest troll that now suddenly he's qualified and he's it's a good story for Australia nonetheless. Yeah, I'll say first of all, I'm I'm not a fan of some of the times he's given less than his best in the past. But I think this is the latest example that if you apply yourself fully, it the age that you are matters a lot less. And say if this were 30 years ago, he's... If he was 18 in Wimbledon 2011, he'd be either 27 yeah, or 28 now. And, that's, yeah. and, and in the past, that was considered the age when tennis players would start right. to fade. And um, But this is a good, like the latest good example of um, you, you can still peak in your late 20s or your 30s. Yeah. And, uh, and he hasn't made a quarterfinal, so maybe I shouldn't call it peaking. But he's given himself the opportunity to do something great again. So, um, so let's hope that he can give his best at this Australian Open. Hopefully, the home crowd will help, and um, and let's hope that this is a turning point in his career. Tricky well. to play against, and when you you know he doesn't give you much rhythm. He's got he's just don't know what he's going to do. He has that unpredictability factor. So I think uh, you know I think he can surprise every now and then and. You know, when he wants to play, he can play. So I think, uh, I think that was a good story. And then I was, uh, you know, really quite impressed with some of the, uh, some of some of the other uh, matches as well. Some somebody I was hoping that would qualify, but I knew he had a really tough draw. Was Brandon Nakashima? He showed a lot at the U.S. Open, and he had a great mm-hmm. run. You know, he's 19 years of age, American, but he had a pretty tough draw, and he drew, um, he he drew the number three seed. Um, I think his name was Aslan Karatsev. And he drew him in the first first match, and yeah. so he, that guy actually qualified. Uh, he's from Russia. He's twenty seven years of age, so there was a big uh, experience gap there, and also mm-hmm. ranking gap. Uh, honestly, almost fifty spots ahead. And so, had yeah. Nakashima won that, he would have played Hugo Gaston in the second round, which I was looking forward to because <laughs> Hugo Gaston obviously pushed team really hard at the French and beat Vavrinka, mm-hmm. and he's very good on clay. But uh, yeah, so yeah. You, you know. So, but I think we'll see more more, yeah, more no. of those guys later uh, later on. Um, yeah, I, I agree. And to add quickly, I think um, while Nakashima losing might be a bit disappointing, there's there was no shame in this loss. I caught one of Karatsev's matches. He returns very well. He he's powerful off both wings. I think um, I think if he wins a couple of rounds at the Australian Open, uh, depending on his draw, it won't be a surprise. Yeah, a lot of great stories and storylines to follow. Um, just one last really quick mention. Uh, since they didn't give us a stream, I'm going to keep it quite short. But there was a tournament in, in, in Antalya that had the number one seed Berrettini in it. Uh, 
and the number two seed Gofan. Um, and we got a final with Alexander Bublik, who's basically Nick Kyrgios with less press, is what I like to call him, <laughs> because he does underhand serves, tweeners, all these kind of trick shots. But uh, unfortunately, he was injured. Uh, he injured himself in the semifinal match. And so that final wasn't really a, a, a great final. And you saw uh, Alex D. Menor, though, showed some good fight to me. He lo- looked like he bulked up a little bit over the offseason. Positive re- result for him, getting his fourth title. You know, he's always a great player to watch, got a, got a great attitude. Uh, you know, nonetheless, he beat Gofan in the semis, so that was a great win for him. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, he's always had success first week of the year, it seems like the last three years, three years or so. And is it kind of in that next tier of players uh, at the next gen between sort of 15 and 25 in the world. And so if you can, the challenge for him is just can he stay healthy and fit and can he just keep growing and physically and add more to his game and more more often, so it doesn't look like when he's playing against a top 10 player like a team or a Nadal in these uh, third round, fourth round matches at slams that it's not a man versus boy situation. So you just feel like he can carry that, he can carry that results, but I'm really impressed with his attitude and his consistency and he's progressing uh, every year, so it's a good step. Yeah, just follow us all uh, and, you know, tell everybody you know about the show, support us, uh, follow our new Twitter page, which is at Tennis and Bagels on Twitter. Uh, as we try to grow that, and we'll definitely use that a little bit more, especially when the Australian Open is on, uh, and some of the tournaments like ATP Cup and stuff coming up. So just be on the lookout for that, and uh, yeah, enjoy the tennis, uh, enjoy the new year, and yep, that's about it. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 